Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. So, my great pleasure to introduce you to Gaia Novarino. Uh, it's a long-time uh, friend. Uh, we know each other for, um, I think, I think we overlap a little bit when when you were here with with Joe. Uh, but Gaia is a professor, um, and she runs like a lab at the Institute of Science and Technology in Austria. I actually, was I visited there a couple of years ago, and it's a it's a beautiful setting. It's a great uh, institute, great place to do science. It seems like everybody's interested in really fundamental, basic science in there. Uh, I was quite impressed. Uh, by the settings and, and the people that I met over there. So I'm really glad that she found like a good place to, to work there. Before moving to Austria, she worked as a research fellow here at UCSD with Joe Gleason, and, and I think that's um, when, when we met, but also at the Max uh, Dilbrook Center for Molecular Medicine uh, and the Center for the Molecular Neurobiology in Hamburg. Um, so she focuses on understanding um, early stages of autism or the interplay between uh, genes uh, uh, mutated or, 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 or affecting autism and neurodevelopment. And she uses a series of uh, stem cells as well as animal models, and I believe she's going to be talking about some of these. Um, the, the work that really impresses me the most, and I think was still uh, in partnership with Joe, when they showed that there is a gene uh, mutated in autism uh, that actually leads to a specific pathway that could be treated um, with supplements. Um, so to me, that was a, a game changer. I said, wow, I mean, that, it means that some of these conditions might be revertible. If you know the pathway, if you know what to do later on. So it, it, it kind of forces me to go more into the genetics of autism. This is part of my lab. So huge inspiration uh, coming from, from Gaia and enjoying this aspect. Um, so uh, without further ado, thank you so much, Gaia, for accepting, for being here. And we look forward to your talk. So thank you very much for the introduction and, of course, for an invitation. It's amazing to be here. I actually remember San Diego a little bit more sunny, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm still uh, really enjoying it. I mean, uh, it's, it's really a pleasure, and I'm very much looking forward to have uh, uh, conversations with, uh, with you guys, uh, uh, both here and later during the day. So as Alison was introducing, so when in my title say uh, neurodevelopmental disorders, I mostly uh, say um, out spectrum disorders. Um, so just very briefly, those are it's a group of disorders uh, that are very heterogeneous and, and, and associated with those uh, social um, um, uh, problems, like uh, uh, including language uh, uh, issues and uh, as well as the presence of repetitive and stereotyped behaviors. As we all know, those issues, they often go together with a number of other uh, problems, including intellectual disability. Motor problems is actually something that we are becoming very interested um, about because they're very, very common among autistic kids, and, and we really try to understand what are the relationship between the, um, uh, the other features, of course, uh, uh, symptoms of, uh, of autism, but also anxiety and epilepsy and so on and so forth. 
Now, for many years, uh, um, we really know, knew just the very uh, bottom of the of the iceberg, in the sense, or the very tip, sorry, of the iceberg. That uh, we are associated always mutations with uh, on autism spectrum disorders uh, with uh, uh, genes encoding for proteins that are relevant to synaptic proteins. The reality came uh, uh, after uh, I mean, people like that sitting also here, like Jonathan, Joe, and many others. Um, have done a lot of more uh, genetic analysis of those conditions uh, and uh, uh, altogether found that uh, eventually a number of other genes encoding for proteins that belong to a number of other functions uh, are in fact involved and associated with those, uh, uh, group, this group of conditions. And so now the question is, uh, in general, how we are bringing all of, all of it together, and uh, are they, in fact, those groups of, 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 uh, of genes and proteins connected with each other? And what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to focus specifically on this class of, uh, of genes that are really coming, um, uh, becoming one of the top class of genes associated with autoinspectant uh, disorders that are transcriptional regulators and epigenetic factors. And uh, uh, um, uh, more of it is what I really would like to, um, and we are really um, uh, trying to understand, is how we can connect this group of genes directly with uh, what we know is happening in autism spectrum disorder with the synaptic dysfunctions that we find in this group of disorder. And so what I'm going to show, if you want, is something about genomic and synaptic plasticity in autism spectrum disorder. And uh, the old work, in fact, started already a few years ago when we started working on a gene that some of you are also are working on, that is SAT35. So uh, together with some geneticists back then in 2000, between 2014 and 15, when I, I moved to Austria, um, we found, uh, and also in parallel to others, that uh, um, mutations in SAT35 uh, um, are a, a cause of intellectual disability, uh, speech delay, uh, short statues, and so, and and the, the, the number of patients that we uh, identified, we and others identified, was quite uh, large. So we know that SATD5 is actually one of the top um, high-risk genes. So SATD5, uh, uh, as uh, depicted here, is, uh, was associated back then to, um, so it belongs to a class of, of genes that is called histone uh, uh, modifiers, or uh, so in this case, histone methyl transferases. And so what was supposed to do at that, uh, so what we knew at that point, uh, it was that this gene was involved eventually in transferring uh, a methyl group to a certain histone uh, in order to regulate gene transfer. Transcription. And I'm not uh, having the time to go through the entire uh, uh, data uh, that we acquired uh, back then, but basically what we found, uh, and, uh, and again, this was very rewarding to see that other people found the very similar things at the same time or a little later, but what we found is that in fact satellite is not an histone methyl transferases. And, uh, and we, we, we hope to have a, a, a cryo-EM structure of satellite with its complex very, very soon. We are working on that. But uh, uh, what we found is that satellite in, in fact interacts with two different complexes. Uh, one is this PATH1 complex that is a, a complex uh, needed to um, um, regulate the posing of the RNA polymerase, so to, to regulate transcription and with the complex that is related with histone uh, deacetylase, uh, which of course is then uh, directly modifying histones. 
And so to make a very long story short, what we found is that in the absence of SAT D5, the number of, uh, uh, of uh, basically PATH1 complex associated with the transcription starting sites, specifically on neuron in, in neuronal genes, is larger, is much higher than in wild type. And so, as you will see, basically, as a consequence, those genes, uh, those transcription starting sites, are much more prone to transcription. And when I say prone, I, I really mean that uh, it's not that those genes are necessarily transcribed more all the time, but they are just much more prone, eventually, to be transcribed. And so the way I see in a way is like this picture here where you have you know, swimmers that are ready to go and eventually someone is just starting a bit earlier uh, um, than the others. So phenotypically, um, when we looked at the mouse uh, um, lacking SAT-D5, uh, uh, one copy of SAT-D5, so this is what happened in patients. Patients have de novo mutations, so they are insufficient, so they lack just one copy. What we found is that uh, um, something that is, is relatively atypical, um, and namely is that uh, uh, the brain size of those animals is completely normal, while the body size is, is quite uh, smaller. So which was already a hint in saying that there is some sort of preference for brain-related or nervous-related uh, type of cells over others. But then there was another phenotype. I, I love this one because it's like it looks like uh, such a, you know, not very relevant to us when you're studying uh, uh, brain disorders. So one of our animal caretaker, caretaker came to us and said, look, a lot of those animals have this white belly spot. And, uh, and uh, I, I, I mean, I promise at the beginning we were like, we're studying the brain, so who cares about the white belly spot? But I, I, again, I really like, because I think this is a beautiful example about uh, how observing things can really teach us a lot and about uh, uh, developmental biology. Maybe some of you uh, know about that, but uh, um, so this, uh, this, the color of the hairs, of course, are coming from melanocytes in, in, in the hairs. And it happens that melanocytes are coming, are deriving from melanoblasts, and melanoblasts are unequally distributed in the body very early, I mean, also later, but very unequally distributed across the body. And being the belly, the part that has the fewest number of those cells. So whenever there is, and another piece of information is that those cells derive directly from the neural crest. So uh, basically, whenever there is a neural crest, uh, a differentiation issue, basically this is one of the places where you're going to see. So what we're going to see there, uh, here is really specifically a neural crest differentiation issue. So uh, and practically what happens is that the melanoblasts here are depleted, and so the very first part where you see it is in the belly. I just, again, I just like to mention it because it's a beautiful example about how both animal caretakers are important, how our heroes and plus how we can learn. So back then, what we, uh, we were interested in understanding is still uh, uh, because uh, um, we knew that this gene was relevant to regulated gene transcription, we went back and asked what happens at the transcriptional level in those animals. And so uh, we looked very early on, actually, when uh, uh, mice were about embryonic day stage 9.5, because uh, we thought that already because of this white belly spot, something should happen very early. We performed RNA sequencing. Um, of the uh, wild type and mutant animals. 
And what we found is that, uh, uh, what I depict here, is that already at this stage, there was really a, uh, a sort of bias of expression for genes. So here, whatever is in red, it means upregulated, blue means downregulated. And uh, I love this picture because it almost resembles the embryo that is on the side. And as you can see, basically, anything that is related to the head and to the brain formation, not anything, but a lot of genes related to the head formation and to the central nervous system were upregulated, while a lot of genes related to other areas, including the neural crust, the skeleton, and so on, were all downregulated. So I really love the way it looks uh, in this picture. Now, of course, this is, uh, we go almost like in a semantic, if you want, is like, is what we are seeing here a phenotype of the fact that basically the embryo at that stage is already has this small, uh, um, small body size and a bigger brain, and so that's what we are seeing. I, I say it's almost semantic because if this happens, it must be because of gene expression, but still, we had this question in mind. And so what we decided to do back then is to generate uh, human embryonic stem cells uh, carrying either uh, heterozygous mutation in, in SAT35 or wild type. And we did a lot of different things to, to, to have controls. And then again, performing RNA sequencing there. And what we found is that already at this stage, what you can see in this map, heat map here, the two uh, mutant lines that we generated show a hub regulation of gene related to the nervous system development. So what we think is that, in fact, already at that stage, there is a bias because of SATD5 missing and because SATD5 is usually regulating transcription at the transcription starting sites of neuronal genes. When this is not there, those genes are kind of more prone uh, to be transcribed. And so that's what leads eventually to this preference of, uh, of uh, um, differentiation of nervous system relevant cells. So this is one aspect of the, the, the SATD5 work. But then, of course, we were still interested in, in, in the behavior of those animals to really go back to what autism spectrum disorders uh, core features look like. And so we did a serious, really, battery of, of behavioral tests there. But, um, one that I want to show, uh, uh, because it's relevant to the rest of the talk, is uh, uh, the context fear conditioning. And so I'm, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that, but just uh, briefly, what we are doing is placing an animal in a, in a, uh, in a new um, a context that is characterized by certain visual and uh, uh, olfactory cues. And uh, um, after about uh, a minute of habituation, uh, we deliver to the animal uh, a few current shock, uh, shocks to associate this uh, uh, context with a bad experience. And so um, then we uh, bring back the animal in the home cage, and 24 hours later, we expose the animal again to the same, uh, to the same um, 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 context where they, did, where they received the, uh, the, um, the bad experience, and we measure the, the percentage, the amount of time that they spend basically freezing. And this measure is a measure of how well they remember that in that specific context they received that uh, bad experience. And there was a bit surprising to see that Saturday 5 animals, they in fact freeze more than the, uh, the wild type animals, a kind of hinting that in fact they remember better, not worse than the wild type, which is something that we did not expect. 
But uh, what we also did is then we left those animals in the same uh, uh, context for about uh, seven more minutes. And this time we did not deliver any shock. So at this point, the animals should uh, um, uh, either form a new memory, it's not clear yet, either form a new memory or either delete the, the previous memory that that was a bad context. And so they should be more relaxed next time that, that they are in there. And this is exactly what happened in, in the wild type animals. But this is is something that does not happen, in fact, in, in the Saturday Five. So we kind of uh, uh, conclude from that uh, that although those animals are very good in learning eventually, they are becoming inflexible to change, and inflexibility is indeed something that is relevant to, very relevant to autism spectrum disorders. Back then, we also did the electrophysiology correlate of that, that is uh, the long-term long potential recording. So we stimulate the shuffle collaterals of those animals and record them from their CA1. And as you can see here, basically the synapses of, uh, of the hippocampus in the mutant animals, they are much more uh, longer staying potentiated uh, than the wild type that here is indicated in black. And here you have basically all the uh, quantification of over the course of many hours. So we recorded up to six hours, in fact. And we see that these basically synaptic strands stay very stable over time. So um, practically, in a way, what, what, what here is uh, uh, this work was telling us uh, is something eventually not very surprising, but eventually often overlooked, I would say. So whenever we are thinking about uh, synapses or synaptic-related uh, disorders, we are really thinking about the synapses, but we are not thinking about what happens at the same time in the nucleus. So here the idea is that eventually there is a lot of communication uh, between the nucleus and the synaptic uh, and, and synapses uh, to the extent that many years ago, in fact, someone was mentioning, uh, was kind of uh, coming up with uh, the, the term of genomic, uh, I think, uh, uh, potential. So sort of to say like action potential, there should be also a nuclear potential somehow. And so that's what we wanted to follow up in the context of SAT-35. And so what we did is um, repeating uh, the, uh, the um, behavioral uh, analysis that, uh, so, sorry, the behavioral training that we did uh, before. So uh, basically uh, putting the animal, SAT-35 and control animals in the context where we deliver uh, current shocks. But then this time, instead of performing the behavioral task, what we did is obtaining the hippocampi uh, about one hour and three hours after uh, the, the training and analyze them by RNA sequencing. And in this specific part, what we did is that, uh, so when we looked at steady state, I should say, there was not major difference. So we could really not detect much uh, difference between the uh, genotypes. And so what we decided to do is really to uh, cluster uh, uh, those genes or those transcripts that change upon the training of the animal in clusters based on their dynamic over time. So for instance, there are genes that eventually like this one, eventually that uh, uh, it goes up one hour after the training. So this is home cage, one hour after the training goes up and three hours after the training it goes down and then others that uh, uh, goes, have completely different behavior. So we basically cluster all the transcript that we obtain by RNA sequencing of those hippocampi after the, the training, one hour after and three hours after, based on their trajectory over time. 
And that's what we obtain. So we obtain many clusters of genes with different type of behaviors. And, uh, and, and so for instance, here you can see uh, that uh, this class of genes or transcripts uh, in wild type, they are increasing one hour after the training and then decreasing uh, three hours after. Uh, this, those are, for example, the early or so immediate um, activated genes like CFOS, for instance. Those are very well-known responses. And then you can see that, uh, so in, in yellow, you always have the upland sufficient mouse. Uh, and you can see that in many cases, uh, uh, the mutant did not really, like in, in those cases here, did not really uh, uh, behave differently than in control. But then you also have a lot of clusters where, in fact, there are transcripts that have a completely different trajectories when one copy of satellite is missing. And so what we did next is asking what are the... Um, pathways that enriched in those specific clusters. And we found that those two clusters um, um, that show this sort of persistent expression of certain gene were actually the most enriched for um, goterms. So the others were, were also enriched, but in, 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 uh, in, uh, so the p-value was a little bit less. But so we were looking at those that really were uh, show a very high enrichment, and we looked what uh, were containing. And indeed, what we found in those were containing uh, really nicely, uh, uh, mostly postsynaptic density-related proteins. And among them, we found many different ones that were already uh, associated, uh, are associated with uh, so that those that I depicted here in yellow and red uh, that were associated with other um, out-inspectum disorders. So practically... What we found here is that, uh, um, so on one side, that Saturday 5 is associated with intellectual disability, ASD features, short stature, strabismo, etc. But then by doing some functional work, uh, we came to the conclusion that eventually Saturday 5 is not just needed early eventually during development, but is also needed to kind of establish this communication between the nucleus and the synapses to regulate the protein, the transcriptal levels uh, upon um, uh, um, uh, during plasticity. So what we asked them next, it was like, is this something that is very specific to Saturday 5? Is this something that is instead we could generalize to other uh, genes that are associated with out-inspectum disorder? And this, this is a, a general feature. And one of the reasons why we were really interested in that is that we thought, I mean, Alison before uh, uh, mentioned that when I was here in San Diego, uh, one of the things that we found is that eventually in some cases uh, we could rescue um, some form of out-inspecting disorder. And so one of the thoughts here was like, if synaptic plasticity and not just synaptic development is eventually relevant in those disorders and are, is regulated throughout life, this is maybe something that we can really target as a treatment later on also. And so what we decided to do is to go a very systematic. And so we decided to include three more genes in our study. So those are H1L, KMT5B, and KDM6B. They're all top ASD-associated uh, genes, uh, as well as epigenetic or histone modifiers. And so we really decided to go uh, uh, very systematic in understanding whether the mutations and appliance sufficiency of those genes was related, in fact, uh, with, uh, as well with synaptic plasticity issues and how the two eventually would communicate. 
And here also we decided to make a step forward, not just looking at one form of uh, uh, synaptic plasticity. So what I introduced basically with the satellite 5 work is the Habian plasticity, that is this uh, form of synaptic plasticity that is related to learning. And so this is a form of plasticity that is, is uh, uh, specific to single synapses in a neuron. So um, that single synaptic synapses that are stimulated. And so what would they say? Because, I mean, of course, learning can be an issue in, 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 in patients without a spectrum disorder, but it's not the only one and not one of the core ones. And so what we decided now is also to include uh, um, uh, another form of plasticity, or to study another form of plasticity that is called homeostatic plasticity. So this is a form of plasticity that uh, instead of being just associated with one synapsis, is really relevant to the entire, uh, the whole synapsis on, 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 uh, on, in, in one neuron. And the way I see this, and uh, I, I, I like to explain it, is that is a way that uh, neurons have to sort of reset uh, their synapses to keep them in, in, the, uh, in a, a certain dynamic range. So practically, uh, the synapse needs always to do this range where it can go up you know, LTP or go down LTD. But then if it gets to a point where they're saturated because they either, for instance, too many receptors or too few, you cannot go anymore up and down. And so you need to reset the synapses uh, to a certain range. Now, the, relevant, the important is that by happening this, uh, uh, involving all synapses in a neuron, the, the ratio, so the, the relation between the different synapses in a neuron always stays the same because you're basically scaling all up or scaling all down. Uh, but, uh, but then you put them in a, in, a, in, a, in a range where this is more functional. And then, of course, this uh, form of, of synaptic plasticity it came uh, to, to be uh, very relevant for a number of different behaviors. So what we decided to do is to uh, very, very systematically address this problem. So we generated uh, um, other three animal models. So H1L, aplin-sufficient models, KDM6B, aplin-sufficient, KMT5B, aplin-sufficient um, um, model. We also have uh, an inducible reversible system I will show to you later. And there, uh, we decided to systematically study synaptic plasticity, so have both Habian plasticity and homeostatic plasticity using both uh, so electrophysiology behavior and as well as uh, molecular analysis. Now, because uh, one of the issues we often have when we study animals is that, you know, and studying, sorry, human disorders in animals is like how relevant are those uh, um, animals for the human disorder. What we also decided to do is for the same genes to generate organoids with uh, starting off from uh, uh, isogenic cell lines, so one cell line, using CRISPR-Cas introducing a, a loss of function mutation in one of the allele of all those genes. And then in this case, we study homeostatic plasticity by electrophysiology. We cannot do behavior, of course, but uh, uh, and then uh, molecular work uh, uh, using those organoids. So that's what I'm going to do. So this is all unpublished still, uh, um, um, and uh, I'm going to uh, guide you through uh, some of those results. So let's start from um, the behavior. And I'm not going to show you the entire data set. Um, some is still on, so it's, 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 we, are, we are about just analyzing it. Um, and, but also it will be just, you know, redundant in a way. 
So let me start by showing you the behavior of uh, two of those animals that are H1L and KADM6B in the context field conditioning. So this is the same paradigm I've shown to you before with Saturday 5. We are uh, um, exposing the animal in a context where they receive an ad uh, adversary experience and then we are replacing those animals in the same context 24 hours later. And what we found is that during the training phase, the animals, so uh, both genotypes, they are kind of able, so we are measuring always the the learning with, uh, with freezing, the amount of freezing of those animals. So with, during the training, we see that those animals here in red and, and, and the lila, they can really learn. So we can see that they're increasing the, their, their, their freezing as we start uh, delivering some um, current shocks. Um, however, when we measured the freezing about 24 hours later, what we found is that in this case, Contrary to Saturday 5, uh, in this case, the animals are indeed learning less. So uh, they are freezing less, significantly less. And here uh, I, I just put some uh, one sex, but we're doing all of this also with males and females. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of more layers of complexity. But what we are seeing is very similar. So we don't see major uh, sex differences. But uh, uh, definitely having just one copy of this gene leads to a problem in uh, learning. And uh, uh, so context learning. So again, we repeated the electrophysiology, so like in Saturday 5, and what we found is that the electrophysiology really goes together with the behavior. And I also want to mention that all those experiments were all done in blind, because I'm always very afraid about the bias of the, of the experimenter. Uh, so we are really revealing the, the genotype just after the analysis has been done. And so what we can see clearly is that in both cases, uh, uh, those animals of slices uh, uh, in those hippocampus, we fail to induce uh, this uh, synaptic uh, uh, potentiation that we do expect when we stimulate with high frequency the shuffle collateral of the hippocampus. So again, this is quite stable. The dynamic is slightly different, and I think it's important to notice this also in the context of what we see at the molecular level. Uh, being H1L very fast, so being impaired from the very beginning, while KDM6B is showing uh, the difference just starting from uh, about 20 minutes after the delivery of the first of the, of the stimulation. So um, going on the molecular side, so I, I'm going to go all the time back and forth, basically, between electrophysiology and molecular, because that's exactly what we are trying to do with this work, to try to understand the relationship. And so what we did is, uh, um, as I mentioned, uh, in this case, RNA sequencing uh, and uh, morphological analysis at the baseline. So what we wanted to understand is at the baseline, already major difference in the transcript eventually related to synapses and or is that a difference in the synaptic morphology that could explain what we see. And the answer was actually no, and this is what's surprising. So what we are seeing here is that uh, both in H1L and, uh, and in KDM6B, we found very limited number of genes or transcripts that are differentially expressed between the, uh, the mutant, so upland sufficient animal, and the, the wild type. So in the H1L, we found roughly 50 genes, which you know, are very, very few. And in KDM6B, we have about 10, which uh, I rarely have observed uh, uh, besides Saturday 5, where we observed exactly the same, where a steady state, we really do not have major differences in gene expression.
This, however, goes also along with what we found in the hippocampus, and uh, I specify this because we think that there are also brain area differences, uh, where we do not find major differences at the level of the uh, spine morphology and uh, synapses number. So, um, Good, so practically, uh, again, because we are looking at the communication between the nucleus and the synapses during plasticity, we again wanted to go back and analyze the, uh, the transcript of all those animals during the plasticity, not just at the baseline. And so we repeated similarly to what I've shown to you for Saturday 5. What we did is, again, training those animals, obtaining the hippocampi uh, uh, one hour and three hours after the training, uh, and then doing RNA extraction and library preparation and RNA sequencing. And we're starting by analyzing what we are observing in wild type. And so this time, looking a little bit more about what is really the relevance of gene transcription during plasticity, this form of plasticity. And so what we see is that in the wild type, one hour after the training, we see a upregulation of gene expression, while there are very few or fewer genes that are downregulated. Three hours after, um, the things kind of equalize a little bit with actually a little bit more downregulated genes compared to the upregulated genes. I will go back to this in a second about what those genes are exactly. But um, what we observe instead in the mutant animals is that everything is much more attenuated. So those responses are, are, are a kind of a smaller in the sense that uh, so this, those two are H1L as, uh, 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 respectively one hour and three hours after the training and those are KDM6B. And so you can see that the number of genes that are either up or down regulated uh, during plasticity is much lower than uh, the, um, the, the wild type. Now, of course, uh, so here our first uh, um, you know, thought was that what happened here is that it's simply synaptic plasticity is not induced in those animals, uh, and so that this signal somehow does not reach the nucleus. But we think, in fact, this is not exactly the case, because when we look at early activated genes like CFOS, we see this is responding completely well. So in the same dynamics, same extent. So the, somehow the signal gets to the nucleus, but is, is, is somewhat attenuated and different. And so what are those genes? So again, uh, looking at the wild type, what we found is that one hour after the training, we see a, a really very massive upregulation of genes that are regulated, are regulating transcription, histone modification, and chromatin rearrangements. Three hours after the training, most of those genes, they go down again. And in fact, we looked at most of them, them and really they show a biphasic kind of uh, uh, trend. On the contrary, synaptic genes show a different type of kinetics. And of course, I mean, here we are limited also on the time, number of time points that we did, right? Because uh, uh, it could well be that if we go more so later, so we don't know, basically, you never know what happens uh, all over the time. But what we see is that synaptic genes are just upregulated a little bit one hour after the training, but they are massively upregulated three hours after. What happens in the mutants is really, uh, uh, it's really nice, I think, is that the signature 
for histone modified transcription regulated chromatin related genes, kinds of remain similar three hours after, but we are completely missing this, uh, this uh, upregulation of those genes uh, one hour after. And in fact, what those trajectories often look like is like going downward uh, 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 all the time. On the other side, synaptic genes, they are completely missing. So we are really not inducing this second wave of gene transcription that are related to synaptic uh, genes. So, so those uh, three hours later, this upregulation of synaptic genes, really saying that eventually this dynamic so that there is between histone regulation and synaptic gene expression uh, is relevant. Now, it's important to say that I'm not saying that those synaptic genes that we see upregulated are the ones that are in fact involved in in, in that way of synaptic plasticity, but in fact that they may change synapses uh, and the synaptic states uh, for later on to be activated. So <clears throat> moving on, uh, we were looking, looking at, and I, again, I will go back to that as well, but uh, moving on, uh, we, we wanted to look at the homeostatic plasticity, plasticity uh, in mouse, so in vivo. Um, I specify here we are doing in, in adult animals, and again, this is because uh, what we are interested about is try to understand whether those genes are just relevant for synaptic functions during development or throughout life, because I think this is a, will be an important information when we are thinking about treatment, right? So if we want, we need to maintain those treatment, how we have to, there are critical windows or not, and so on and so forth. And in fact, also the habium plasticity part was done in adults, but also later, uh, uh, earlier on, to try to understand how this changed over development. So how are we studying uh, synaptic uh, homeostatic plasticity, plasticity in, in specifically in this case, in case upscaling um, in mouse is by injecting TTX in one eye. This uh, kills basically all the projections of that eyes to, uh, to, to the visual, so the contralateral visual cortex, but keeps intact the uh, visual cortex, the projection to the visual cortex in the ipsilateral. This is really nice because practically what you have is in the same animal, you have both the control and the treatment. And so uh, because we did in adult animals, we had to work a little bit with the protocol because this is typically done using, uh, during this uh, uh, critical window of, of visual cortex development. Um, but we show, in fact, that this works well. So those are the uh, um, wild-type leader mates of the two genotypes that we, are, uh, we were looking at. And we can really say that uh, upon uh, TTX injection, we have an um, increase of uh, miniature excitatory postsynaptic currents amplitudes. That is that what you expect when you upscale basically uh, the, the synapses. So in this case, basically, the neuron receive less activity. And so because of that, it's trying to increase the activity of the synapses to be in that uh, uh, sort of efficient range. And so that's what we see. So in the wild type, this is happening uh, clearly. And uh, what we see is that in both mutants, this form of plasticity is completely lacking. We, are still, we still didn't do the other way around, so the downscaling so is something that eventually we will have to do. But what we did is then moving forward with the human-based uh, uh, model and ask whether this is something that is conserved also in human uh, neuronal circuits. And so in order to do that, uh, I, I mentioned that we generated stem cells with mutation in all those uh, uh, four different genes that we were interested at. 
and uh, um, we had to uh, work a little bit with the protocol because normally those those organoids they are not so we use a, a classical uh, um, um, and um, so classical like Lancaster protocol, but uh, uh, um, because uh, um, those organoids they usually are not maturing um, very much electrophysiology uh, physiologically, we had to, to change a little bit of things. And so what we're doing is then when those, uh, those organites are about uh, two months old, uh, we, are, um, um, we are first exposing them or not to TTX to induce, uh, uh, um, again, uh, to reduce the neural activity to induce uh, synaptic upscaling. And then we are slicing, two days after, we are slicing those organites and uh, uh, do single cell patch clamp. This was uh, something, again, that was never done before. So it took us a little while. So the very first uh, nice thing is that in, indeed by exposing those organoids uh, in, to TTX for two days, we are able to um, in, uh, induce this form of uh, homeostatic plasticity, so this upscaling. Um, and uh, so this is very clear in controls. And uh, the very nice part is here where we see that this form of plasticity is completely lacking in all the genotypes we have looked at. So really to me, showing uh, the largest amount of functional convergence uh, uh, among different genes that I have uh, ever seen uh, so far. So again, we want to also understand how this form of plasticity uh, uh, that of this phenotype, electrophysiology uh, uh, phenotype, uh, relates to the molecular um, uh, potential molecular issues. So what we did, and here I'm showing just the data on, on the mouse cortex, what we did is again doing this uh, TTX injection, and instead of uh, doing the recording, electrophysiology recording, we obtained the visual cortex from the controllateral and ipsilateral side and performed both uh, bulk RNA-seq and uh, bulk ataxic because of course those are factors that they're changing the chromatin structure, so we were also interested in looking at the, the structure. And we did that again over time, so both at 24 hours after the TTX uh, injection and 48 hours after. And this is, a, I, I, am, I have to say, this is extremely difficult data to, 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 to kind of interpret, and we are still working on that. Uh, and in fact, uh, we think that the only way to understand some parts is going single cell, and that's what we are doing uh, exactly right now. But I give you <laughs> a few, uh, uh, go through uh, the data that we have so far. And so what we observe is that, uh, uh, sorry, uh, let me go a step back. So what we did is looking at the RNA sequencing and other sequencing data starting from baseline. So again, the question was, uh, is that the baseline, th are there difference in the synaptic states of those animals in the visual cortex? And the answer is that in this case, contrary to what we see in the hippocampus, we could detect many more genes that were already a baseline, were differentially expressed in both an H1L and KDM6B uh, um, um, in, in the mutants, uh, a baseline in the visual cortex. So really indicating that already a baseline, there is something. And we don't know why there is this difference between the hippocampus and the visual cortex, where in the hippocampus, uh, uh, we do not see any difference in, in transcription uh, baseline while in the visual cortex we do. And interestingly enough, those differences are all related to uh, synaptic uh, signaling uh, genes, uh, 
But what we also observe is that the directionality of those changes are opposite in the two different genotypes. And so basically to make it easier to digest, what we think is that despite those genes, they are functioning converging at the synaptic level that do not necessarily converge in the directionality and also, you can see here the overlap of genes. So there are just a few genes that are overlapping, those synaptic genes that are overlapping between the two genotypes. They are not overlapping in terms of the exact genes. So what we think is that the functional convergence is there, but this doesn't mean that the, the functional convergence is at the, at the single gene and goes in the same way, in the same type of regulation. And I think this is very important. When we look at the other sick, we also found differences, and I think this can explain partially, in part, what we see, and namely is that at the ataxy, at the chromatin level, H1L gene has already huge difference at the baselines with many differentially accessible regions between the mutant and the wild-type animals, while in KDM6B, we could not see a single differentially accessible region. So we do explain, or we kind of interpret this data, but again, for this we really have to obtain both the attack and the RNA from the same cell at the, RNA, at the single cell level to really go into the exact mechanism, and that's what we are doing now. But what we, the way we interpret here is that eventually those changes that we see at the transcriptomic level in the H1L are a direct consequence of those ataxic chromatin rearrangements that we see. But what we are observing here at the transcriptomic level cannot be explained directly by the chromatin rearrangement and maybe it's just representing the synaptic state of those, uh, uh, in those samples. So it's a slightly different type of uh, uh, mechanism, we think. And this makes sense when we move on and look at how the transcripts of those uh, um, cells change over time during plasticity. So what I'm showing here is just, uh, is just uh, at the baseline. So what happens during plasticity? So first, uh, 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 importantly, so those are just the wild types. So it's the same data that I've shown to you or similar data that I've shown to you before. So what we see is that in wild type, are both at the RNA sequencing and other sequencing level, 24 hours after the TTX injection of those animals, not a lot is really happening, probably because still those nerves are still degenerating and so the, the, the visual cortex still receive uh, uh, good inputs. And uh, by 48 hours after, uh, we see a really massive regulation of gene expression and also of chromatin remodeling. Interestingly, this goes in that, so has a slightly different directionality as compared to the Hebbian uh, plasticity, where, whereby here we are seeing much more down-regulation of gene expression, which kind of, again, we interpret in a way that sort of, in this case, gene expression is needed sort of to put a break to the process of, that of, 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 of homeostatic plasticity that is initially regulated by proteins that are already there. So basically by more translational dependent rather than transcriptional dependent. What happens in the mutants is that in the ATEX, in the H1L mutant, where we had already those huge different at the chromatin level, we did not see any, anything happen during plasticity. 
while in the KDM6 model, where we have no difference at the chromatin level uh, uh, before, we really have uh, uh, huge differences. Sorry, here is cut, but it's, it's practically in the ATASIC we see the same thing. So when we looked at the, at the genes that are deregulated, uh, so either at the transcriptomics or at the, at the chromatin level in, in the KDM6 mutant, what we found is that uh, uh, the KDM6B uh, uh, mutants, they show uh, a very much upregulation, so this is just the 48-hour standpoint, an upregulation of genes related to histone modification and chromatin modification and a downregulation of, of synaptic genes, uh, uh, um, of synaptic genes that, however, is a bit uh, sort of uh, not that strong. Interestingly enough, those factors that are activated here in KDM6B, they are not activated in the wild type. So what we asked is whether those factors that now are activated so, uh, in, in uh, and specific transcription factors that are activated in KDM6B um, are somehow directly related to the, to the expression of the synaptic genes that are differentially expressed in KDM6B. So practically what we did is creating gene uh, interaction networks where we used uh, transcription factors uh, differentially regulated in KDM6B with the uh, synaptic genes differentially regulated in KDM6B and ask whether those were more connected by the shunt. So in a way, it's like, are those transcription factors directly related to the synaptic changes that we see? And this is the, the answer is yes. So indeed, they are more connected than by shunts. And also, they are, in fact, also enriched for AAC-relevant genes. So really indicating that the changes that we see at the chromatin level are eventually directly related to the synaptic difference that we see. Although we are not really saying what exactly the mechanisms are and what are the dynamics completely. So uh, I, I have just a, a couple of more slides uh, where I would like to show uh, one part that uh, it's really dear to us is like how we can go about, so now that we know eventually that indeed those impact uh, the role of those, so the, the, the synaptic plasticity during adulthood, can we do something for that? So can we go back to that concept of reversibility? And so I showed to you is that we also generate a number of stop uh, animal models where you can induce, basically those animals are born as knockout animals. By, uh, and by tamoxifen injection, you could revert the expression of the uh, one allele, and, and so you can convert them to wild-type animals. So, and I should mention that uh, not all stop uh, models work uh, uh, equally well. Uh, in fact, it's it quite tricky. Uh, but I'm going to show the example of uh, KDM6B that really is, uh, is uh, probably one of the best that we have in our hands so far. So what we're doing here is uh, crossing the KDM6 so the, the KDM plus stop animal. So the stop basically is like a minus allele. Um, but the stop in this case is fluxed with the CRE-ER animals where we can uh, then uh, obtain those, uh, those uh, transgenic animals where we inject tamoxifen over the course uh, of uh, uh, about a week for several times to induce the uh, removal of the stop cassette to reinduce the expression of the KDM6P gene. 
And importantly, we do this when animals are already four weeks old. So again, what we want to ask is how this synaptic plasticity defect we see is a, is a, is a function of developmental issues or a function of, of KDM6 function later on. So we can show that we can indeed, uh, um, so the, the stop animals that are here, that are just injected with vehicle, they show about 50% of the amount of KDM6 proteins, so like we would expect because they are, have one allele with a stop cassette, and we can show that we can not completely, but uh, uh, eventually uh, revert partially uh, the expression of KDM6B upon tamoxifen injection. And so then we did then afterwards uh, is to do the electrophysiology that for us was very strong um, a signature of those genes. And so what you're seeing here is like the two well types, so the vehicle injected, tamoxifen injected well type, where you can see really this nice long-term potentiation. Here you can see the vehicle injection, tamoxifen injection, and KDM6 animals, whereby you see that those ones are the vehicle injected where you do not see this LTP induction, so similar to what we see. In fact, we can also overlap with the uh, heterozygous animal model. And here instead we have uh, uh, the, uh, the animals upon uh, re-induction or rescue of gene expression, so really showing that indeed this is not just a function of development. Finally, and this is really uh, the last basically uh, two slides, uh, we wanted to leverage on the fact that we have this organized system to try to uh, eventually screen or do mini screens for drugs that eventually we could apply to uh, rescue those uh, phenotypes. And so here, we could not really do a large screen. We still do patch clamping, so it's a, so it's a low throughput. And so we had to do a sort of an educated guess of the drugs that we could use. So we went through the pathways of what we know that, for instance, Ash1L and KDM6B are doing. Um, uh, and we selected a couple of different drugs. I'm showing the data for one that uh, show uh, interesting uh, uh, parts of uh, patterns. Um, so we selected this ANC uh, uh, 1999 um, based on what basically this is an inhibitor of this PRC2 complex that is uh, an antagonist of KDM6B. And what we show is indeed that, uh, um, so we repeated basically the TTX induction, so homeostatic plasticity. And so what we show is indeed that uh, uh, this drug is able to specifically uh, change or rescue plasticity in KDM6B, but not in H1L. So indicated by that, by using this approach with organoids, we could identify drugs that are specific to rescue. Uh, so it's not like the one drug for all, and I do not believe this will happen. Happen, but eventually that is able to rescue specifically uh, the uh, uh, phenotype of KDM6B mutant animals or, or organites. So with this, uh, I really conclude. Basically, in summary, what uh, I've shown to you is that uh, we should uh, also, as neuroscientists, focus not just what happens uh, on neural activity or at the synaptic level, but we should look much more at what happens also in the nucleus during not just development, but also uh, later on during life. And so that by analyzing a number of genes that are relevant to epigenetic and chromatin modification, we eventually found that uh, uh, 
uh, mutation in those genes impact significantly synaptic plasticity, and we think that they, they do so by changing the response or the, of the transcriptional response to, during uh, uh, synaptic trans uh, transcription. And eventually, this is something I didn't tell you, but uh, we are working on the hypothesis. That's why we need a single cell. That this happens because the system becomes much more noisy, and so in a way, uh, the, the single genes that are changing is not they are not relevant, but what happens is that they're not fine-tuned anymore uh, responses, but they're kind of becoming much uh, less uh, uh, tuned with what happens. And so with this, uh, I and I really want to thank the people. Uh, this is my lab. It's a fantastic, amazing group. And, uh, and so Bernadette is the hero of the unpublished work that uh, I've shown to you together with Christoph and, and Jessica. And so with the help of everyone else, as well as some other um, um, collaborators. So, and thank you for your attention. So Gaia, the, um, amazing talk, really. It's the second time I've seen it, and, and, and it gets even better the second time. It's, 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 it's like watching a, 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 a Star Wars movie or something. So uh, when you present this to a room full of geneticists, human geneticists, huge light bulbs, red flags, and neon signs go off in our heads because... It's been, That's what they want. <laughs> it's, been, it's been clear for years now that mirror phenotypes of different genetic disorders, and in some cases, the same gene, gain of function versus loss of function, producing a perfectly mirror phenotype, of uh, both of which fall underneath the autism umbrella, has been kind of like a, a classic theme yeah. in human genetics, um, a theme that somehow doesn't ever seem to filter into the audience of neuroscientists, right, where they're always looking for commonalities among all the autism genes, and the fact that they don't see them makes them worried, right? That's actually exactly what's going on in autism, right? That's right. So you have the perfect example where you have two animal models that have exact opposite effects on LTP, exact opposite effects on conditioned fear learning, and then you start getting into the transcriptional effects, and you can connect uh, transcriptional regulation to synaptic regulation. But obviously, as you get down those rabbit holes, we kind of lose sight of that original um, idea that you really have kind of these mirror opposites. So do you, do you have a way of, of kind of, do you have kind of a simple model to kind of describe, A, what's going on at the transcriptional level, and how are they going in different directions in these four different animal models that produce and how are they? How are they affecting uh, genetic regulation, synaptic proteins, and that produce these mirror opposite LTP and condition, condition fear effects? Yeah, thank you. This, this is uh, this is exactly. Um, I mean, and it's not by chance that I'm doing this work coming again from you know a lab where we did a lot of genetics and having some background in, in neuroscience there. So. Um, the model. This is exactly where I am. Like, and that is where why I'm so. I really want to get this single cell because I think we cannot get the real model until we really get into the mechanism precisely. And uh, so I have tried to do this with the data I have in hand now for over three months and make it like we want a simple model. And it's not simple. And one reason why it's not simple is that even if we look at two brain, uh, different brain regions, the hippocampus and visual cortex, we see slightly different things because we're looking. So even different forms of synaptic plasticity, they have different dynamics. So, that's, uh, so what I, I, I said at the end, uh, 
um, that I think the one way to explain our data with a simple model is really a matter of uh, noise to signal ratio is really what I think is happening. So it's about all noise to signal ratio. But why going in one direction or another direction? This for me is not yet clear. Or in part, it is clear depending on in which direction are going the, is going the expression of certain genes. That uh, uh, somehow, if you are exaggerating the expression of certain genes, you may make those synapses just more. Still, they are not tuned, and that's why at the behavioral level, I think then they look very similar. But when you look at the electrophysiology level, they look different. So the transcriptomic level, they look different. So this, I think, really would explain the, the convergence at the behavioral level and then start kind of, 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 of making it uh, subgroups at the molecular and the electrophysiology. So that's the way we are working on. Uh, but for that, I really need that data set, which should come in a couple of weeks. Hi, Gaia. Hi. Fantastic work. You did so much experiments, so many mouse models. Yes. <laughs> and I was really fascinated, you know, with your contact dependence data. So we all in autism research know that, you know, when you make haploinsufficient mouse model and look at the transcriptomic um, changes, you know, it's they're always like not that great. Exactly. And a lot of uh, not you know homozygous models they are embryonically lethal, and we can study those, and then they are not relevant, right, to the human phenotype. So you really need to look at the haploinsufficient models. So um, my my question is that. Um, maybe uh, do you think like all we all should be looking at the context dependent you know gene expression changes proteomic changes whatnot and how do we pick the behavior like in your you know model it's fear conditioning like but there are so many different context dependent you know behaviors we can look at like what's your thoughts yeah. like in general for autism research looking at the you know this haplogenesis insufficient mouse models like how how can we advance uh, yeah. so thank you uh, this is an excellent question and indeed for instance we are doing now the same thing we're doing in social behavior right because this is something very a different type of context there's not a uh, but I think this is a very relevant question, and uh, the, the answer is that so far what I don't know is whether a baseline, we cannot capture a difference because in this case we are doing a bulk, and so basically we are not synchronized. So what, what my, my uh, uh, thinking is that it could be that what we are doing with the context uh, or with the behavior is just sort of synchronize uh, an, an amount of cells uh, on the same uh, uh, response, and so we are able to capture something. And so um, while when we are doing just in a steady state, a baseline, maybe you know, cells are all doing different things, so we are we're not really looking at the one precise thing. And so in order to answer to that, so, so the, the, basically there are two possibilities. It could be that a baseline, we're able to find differences, but just if we go in single cell populations. And so that, again, is what we are doing right now, because this really will help us, uh, is how much is context dependent, how much is already a baseline, but they, because of the heterogeneity of cells, we are not able to capture. Um, but on the other side, I pretty much believe that is also the other way around, that there is also something that... Um, is during 
you know, that we have to kind of play a little bit with those uh, uh, um, different uh, situations to be able to capture different transcriptional responses. Hi, great talk. Um, one quick question. So I noticed that you also look into transcription factors along with histone modifiers. And for transcription factors, as they physically bind to the chromatin and you're interested in the genomic differences among cells, have you ever done or considered doing like a high C sequencing to see how these transcription factors actually change and remodel the chromatin? Yes, absolutely. Uh, this is a, it's on our to-do list that uh, is becoming longer and longer and more expensive and more expensive. <laughs> so it was nice to hear about the grants you have here. I just should go back with some of those uh, to my institute as well. But, uh, um, <laughs> but. Uh, um, so one problem with IC is uh, is uh, is the tissue you start with um, at the beginning, and I do not think that this is going to be feasible with the visual cortex or the hippocampus because again it's a lot of heterogeneous cell types and so it's very difficult. One way we could do this and we're thinking about do this is with differentiated so pre-differentiated cells where we are you know again have a more homogeneous population and then we could ask that question. What uh, a way to overcome this is that we could start doing like again, chip seek and uh, go more in the, that direction. But we are, of course, thinking about this, but uh, we don't think this is the perfect model yet to do that. Thank you. Thanks. Evan, would you like to take some online? Yeah, there's a simple one actually relevant to the haploinsufficiency sufficiency question. Um, the questioner wanted to know whether uh, SETD5 knockout is lethal. It is. It is. All those, I mean, also as Lily mentioned, all those animals are lethal when in homozygosity. So um, we never work with that. Yeah. Great. Oh. Hey, thanks for your talk. Um, I couldn't help but notice towards the end, uh, I never realized that some of these, I, I work in Alzheimer's disease, I never realized that some of these um, transcription factors are related to the PRC2 complex. And this is the complex that we are beginning to lean more on as a potential mechanism involved in Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, we see similar things. Uh, some of the mutations in familial Alzheimer's disease result in opposite gene expression profiles. Um, and so one of the ways we're trying to re reconcile uh, these, the, the, this opposing effect that we didn't expect to see is, well, generating time series data. You know, maybe the different mutations result in, uh, you know, an early activation of something that later leads to down activation of that same process. Um, so we're, we're reconciling it with time series data or attempting to, um, and, and given all the similarities, I, I'm wondering what your guys' approach is um, and uh, in the future how you're looking to generate um, you know, a schematic that, that reconciles that difference. Yeah, I think this is very important. And uh, we actually uh, first thought about this when we were, when we were working on Saturday 5 because I mentioned that Saturday 5 is interacting with the HDAC3. And uh, HDAC3 inhibitors uh, have been proposed by, for instance, Liu Aizai at MIT that uh, could be used to, for treating Alzheimer. And so what we think here, and interestingly, if you're looking, and so we were screening the literature, looking at HDAC3 knockout mouse models, and the HDAC3 knockout mouse models have a very, actually, the same phenotype at the behavioral level in the context-free conditioning as SATD5, so really matches that. And so, 
um, this makes the, the so me think that indeed HDAC3 inhibitors they're very good in in in, in, in eventually increasing cognitive abilities because of this learning thing that we also see in Saturday five. So it's an increase of le uh, learning uh, in, in the context of your conditioning, but. What are the sort of the effect in the long term could be completely different, right? Because mentally this could lead to a, a, a decrease in flexibility. So I, I, I'm not answering directly. So to do your question, I'm just saying like we're aware about this. And uh, uh, I mean, on one side, of course, it's tempted to say, you know, there is all this, uh, this, um, this part that say how Alzheimer is really just a little uh, time disorder or how much is starting earlier on. Uh, so we have to start to put those together, all this together, but uh, um, I, I don't think I have yet a system to say, um, you know, how to go about all those different genes and up and down and so on. This is exactly what also Jonathan was referring to. It's, it's extremely difficult to find that one fit all rule. Yeah, great talk. So uh, just a quick question. Do you think the genetic background also plays in what you see, especially for the you know, differences you see from each of the different genes? Yes, I think the, the, one of the next steps will be uh, interesting to, to look to generate cerebral organoids from patients. We do have cells in, in, in some cases, and to repeat all of this to understand what type of effect this would be really uh, an important step to, to do it. Maybe we'll finish up with one last question online. Uh, this questioner wanted to know, um, you, you clearly have isolated a lot, of the, a, a lot of the defects to synaptic plasticity. In looking at the various genes, have you been able to yet figure out what aspect of synaptic plasticity? It, is it vesicle release, vesicle uptake, spine formation, that kind of thing? Yes, so that's a very also interesting question. So um, and goes back to something that I briefly mentioned. So uh, what do we see when we look at the um, enrichment analysis of uh, so go term analysis of synaptic genes is that what we get back in the wild type of very specific terms. For instance, synaptic vesicle release and uh, so exocytosis, but a number of other things. So postsynaptic density. So very 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 specific. And what happens in the mutant is everything become broader. So that's why I mention is that what we think is that the system is not precise anymore. So it's not even about what type of genes, but it's like that, that everything become kind of more noisy. And so, yes, we get still synaptic genes in some cases, but we don't get any more those very specific terms. So um, in some cases, it's synaptic physical release, but uh, we have also other terms. Yeah, very proper question. No other question. There's no other questions on Zoom. Any other questions on in the room?